Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Burn By Books. I'm your host, Chris Holmes. The weather here is terrible outside, and we're all stuck inside, so let's talk about some books. I'm interested this week in talking a little bit about bookstores. It's an issue that's incredibly close to my heart. I feel like I am as obsessive about bookstores as maybe anyone I've ever met, and I care deeply about my neighborhood bookstore and about pretty much every bookstore I've ever been to. I love all bookstores. I love the shabby ones with tons of towers of stacks of books that reek of aging paper. I love the museum bookstore with elegant shelving and boutique one-of-a-kind editions. I like the huge international stores with floor upon floor of titles. And I love the small curated bookstore with employees who are just absolute book nerds and who are recommendation machines. They can just conjure a book for you no matter what your interest, what your very specified, um, totally, you know, too specific genre, um, subgenre need is. They've got you. I love all of those stores. And so for the last 10 years, as we've all encountered this narrative that bookstores are uh, imminently dying that they don't have a place in a world with um, Amazon, with um, the advent of instantaneous books that we download onto screens, that bookstores are archaic. Um, and when I've encountered this narrative, it has always seemed like it misses one huge point, and that is that it's not just a place that we go to buy books. It is not like a clothing store where you go in and you try something on and then you buy it and you leave with that. There is some kind of community experience that's happening in a bookstore that makes it utterly different than any other kind of commercial capitalistic enterprise. There just is nothing like the experience of browsing in a bookstore. And if you're listening to this podcast, it's very likely that you are, I'm preaching to the choir, you're already like-minded. But I am very interested in how a commercial space, like a bookstore, is also a public space. It feels as though it is yours, um, and I think that's why you find people will sit and read a whole book. And 
that isn't against the culture of bookstores, or at least most bookstores, because there's the sense that you also probably buy one as well, even as, as you read another one. And this is especially true of my neighborhood bookstore, um, which I think is one of the, the, the truly great small curated bookstores that I've that I've ever been in. And it's that it is actually a community owned bookstore. It's one of the few in the country. Um, and it's got a really interesting story about how it got that way, but it's, it's owned by the city of Ithaca. And you feel that you feel it in how the titles are curated. It just feels like a place that was made for the people in the town. But I often feel that about bookstores that aren't community owned even sometimes in in larger chain bookstores, I feel like there's something about it that's a public space. It is meant for a community um, engagement that doesn't necessarily have to involve you buying a book when you come in. There can be a different kind of engagement. I think it's also why they become these spaces of constant performance we go to them um, to hear people read, to hear discussion, and to enter into those discussions and find out new voices that we've never realized were the ones we needed to hear. And it's because of that special performativity, that public space where we can go and listen to a poet read their work, and then maybe buy a book or maybe just sit and talk to someone that the bookstore becomes something different and something I think that especially at this moment is worth our time to fight for. And so part of this podcast is um, a project of mine to direct you to books that maybe you haven't heard of before that I love and I want to tell you about and to get you invested in new authors, new works, new genres, and then to direct you to buy those books from small, large, medium, but independent bookstores that need that purchase from you now more than ever. Because when we, when we come out of social isolation and we're with each other again, I'm going to be running to a bookstore. I'm going to want to talk to the employees at the bookstore that's right near my house and have them tell me about all the things they've been reading during this time. And so even though I hope that Burned by Books will continue on after social isolation has ended, for now, I want to talk with you about books. I want to introduce you to the things I love, but I also want to lift up the bookstores that need us now. They need you to buy extra books, books all the time when you can. Buy books as presents, send them to people you know are isolated more than others and could really use them. And so on the podcast website, which is just burnedbybooks.com, every episode will give you the opportunity to see the books that I'm talking about, that our interviewees talk about, and then what I you know, offer as recommendations each week. And it'll be an easy link to buy them for Buffalo Street Books which is my hometown bookstore, but also to encourage you to buy them from your hometown, your neighborhood bookstore, or through bookshop.org, which is a pretty new conglomeration of independent bookstores that allows you to buy online in a way that benefits neighborhood stores. So that's really one of the major sort of driving motivations of this podcast and I hope you'll join me in this project of saving bookstores. And it is for that reason that our interview today, a really exciting get for me, uh, is the general manager of Buffalo Street Books. And we're going to hear from Lisa Swayze later on in the show. Before that, uh, I'll line up a discussion of a brand new book that I think you're just going to love so much. You're going to devour it. You're going to forget the outside world for a little bit. It's The Glass Hotel by Emily St. John Mandel. And then I'll end up with some quarantine book recommendations that fall under a special subgenre that I'm going to call 
paranoid campus novels. And I'm going to talk a little bit about why we, why I think as readers and as writers, we return to the campus atmosphere again and again, looking for this sort of welling up of something that's either magical, horrible, arcane, um, but in any case, it's a space where a lot of our paranoia finds its roots and we're allowed to sort of play within its very anxious and angsty uh, halls. So I hope you'll find those picks exciting. If you haven't read them, hopefully there'll be something new for you. But I'm thrilled you're here. Welcome again to Burned by Books. My recommendation for you this week is likely something that you've already heard of or seen coming down the pike. It's one of this year's most anticipated releases, Emily St. John Mandel's The Glass Hotel. Her previous novel, Station Eleven, which I spoke about last week as one of my recommended quarantine reads, was an enormous success and sold 1.5 million copies and was translated into numerous languages. It was a prescient novel in ways that she could have never anticipated. The story of a virus emerging out of China and leading to the decimation of populations all around the world being one that spoke perfectly to its present and unknowably to its future. The Glass Hotel is a very different kind of novel, but it's one that cast a spell on me. It begins with someone falling into the ocean, and it's told in a series of short, staccato, bulleted narrative moments. I'll read you just a few of those. Chapter 1, Vincent in the Ocean 1. Begin at the end, plummeting down the side of the ship in the storm's wild darkness, breath gone with the shock of my falling, my camera flying away through the rain. 2. Sweep me up. Words scrawled on a window when I was 13 years old. I stepped back and let the marker drop from my hand, and I still remember the exuberance of that moment. That feeling in my chest like light glinting on crushed glass. 3. Have I risen to the surface? The cold is annihilating. The cold is all there is. This style is engaged only for a very short first chapter, which gives way to something like what might be called the St. John Mandel style. It is neither ornate nor spare in its prose, but spends such loving time delving into its characters that it manages to distill from them a vital essence, a shard of human need, perhaps ignored by the character themselves for some period of their lives, but engaged by a trauma or a loss. The hub of the story traces a woman named Vincent, after Edith St. Vincent Millay, and her brother as their lives diverge after an incident while they are working at a secluded hotel on a Vancouver island, the eponymous Glass Hotel. What follows is a series of character portraits of those lives who cross Vincent's or are in some way changed by a choice she makes along the way. While the pressing drama of the novel's middle section concerns a Bernie Madoff look-alike Ponzi scheme, the plotted elements of that part of the story serve to develop the most pressing question the novel has for us at this moment. What constitutes a privileged life? And can happiness with our own lives ever be extracted from that sense of privilege or its lack? Characters live in ostentatious wealth and possibility in this novel, 
but dream of meaning that stands outside that privilege. When circumstances take all that possibility away, the pared-down existence prompts reflections on our meaningfulness to the lives and experiences of others. Some of the most feelingful moments in the book take place in a prison cell and with the conjured ghosts of one character's past life. Much like Station Eleven, a novel about a pandemic where the pandemic is besides the point, The Glass Hotel is a lasting novel because of how seriously it treats its characters' inner lives and cares for them even in their moments of failure or immorality, venality, even cruelty. It is a book of moods and interiors, architecturally sculpted so that we feel we have such an intimate vantage on the lives within that it feels voyeuristic in the way only a great novel can. When the events of that first decontextualized chapter return again at the very end, I found myself struck by how much I had invested in Vincent's life. It was indeed a rare privilege to watch her from beginning to end. And this is a novel that I cannot recommend highly enough. We'll be right back with an interview with the general manager of Buffalo Street Books, Lisa Swayze. Welcome back to Burn by Books. It's my absolute pleasure to welcome as our guest for this episode, Lisa Swayze. She is the general manager of the cooperatively owned independent bookstore Buffalo Street Books in Ithaca, New York. And from 1987 to 1998, she worked at Alice James Books and was a assistant manager and sidelines buyer at Wordsworth Books in Cambridge, Massachusetts a wonderful bookstore that I don't think sadly exists anymore, um, but one of the great ones. Lisa, how are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm great. It's so nice to have you. Um, and I want to start with just a question about what you're reading, because the other thing that should go on your CV, no matter what you're applying for as a job is that you are one of the all-time great readers um, that I have ever known, and you put me to shame reading-wise. So I'd love to know um, what you're reading right now. Um, what's the book that makes you want to just jump out of this interview and go and finish it? Well, actually, on your suggestion, because you were going to be talking about The Glass Hotel, I moved that up on my two to read pile and started reading that and I'm loving it. So I would be very happy to spend a couple of hours with that this afternoon if I could. You like it. Did, did you, did you read station 11? I for... did not. Oh, you didn't. Okay. And that's why it wasn't at the top of my list yet because I just didn't, I hadn't, I haven't discovered her yet. So it's cool. Cause now I've, I'm liking this one. I mean, you know, to be determined for sure mm. by how things continue to go. I'm about a third of the way through. But it would be great to, uh, I mean, I heard fabulous things about it, but I didn't read it. Station Eleven, I've been recommending sort of kind of half-heartedly now in that it is so on the nose. Uh, and <laughs> I mean, it's even a, uh, it's a virus that starts in China and ends up oh wiping out yeah, you know, an enormous <laughs> portion of the population. So <laughs> you might want to leave it, but it is, I mean, it is just an extraordinary novel. And while I don't think um, The Glass Hotel is is quite at that level, it certainly is one of the most engaging things I've read in a while. <laughs> so I, I hope you continue to like it. <laughs> so you're the general manager of my favorite bookstore. It's my hometown bookstore. It's, you know, two and a half miles away from my house. Uh, but it's also one of the few community-owned bookstores in the country, which makes it really almost sine qua non. Can you give us a sense of what makes Buffalo Street Books a different kind of store and maybe how it emerged in its current state as a community-owned bookstore? 
Sure. I mean, first, I guess the history being that, um, uh, you know, post 2008 um, economic downturn and then moving forward with a lot of um, a lot of indie bookstores in that time period, late 2010s and well, 2000 singles into the 2010s. Um, we're going under, and that's also, you know, when Amazon really, I don't like to say the name, I, they're kind of our Voldemort, if you think about <laughs> it, um, was really going strong. And so Buffalo Street Books was owned by an individual at that point, and, and they were, he was struggling to keep it alive and said, I think I'm going to have to close. And um, one of the employees who was working there at the time, author Bob Prohl, actually, um, came up with the idea of, hey, what if the community could buy the bookstore? And so... The community-owned um, bookstore was born by offering shares to community members to raise enough money to keep it afloat. And it's been – that happened in 2011, and it's uh, it's been a rocky road. Um, I would say it's never an easy road. But what's really special about being a community-owned bookstore is that, you know, you're an owner. I'm an owner. There are approximately about 900 other people who have decided to – literally, quite literally, I mean, I always think I'm using that word wrong, but if I am, I am, uh, invest, invest their dollars, not just in purchasing, but in, you know, trying to keep this bookstore afloat. And those people really do feel that investment. They have a personal stake in our store doing well. So whenever we hit hard times, there are people who really, really, really care about, um, making sure this bookstore survives. And, uh, it's, it's something that I'm seeing right now during this crisis with the pandemic as we've had um, a real uptick in the number of new owners. So oh, that's great. I didn't know really, about the really new really owners. value this little store. And you've come off an incredibly successful um, fundraising campaign or um, what's the name of the... GoFundMe, the, yeah. Yeah, GoFundMe campaign. Yeah, yeah, the board started a GoFundMe right at the beginning of the crisis because we knew that you know, we're always right on the edge. Um, it's just not, uh, the, actually the president of the American booksellers association, um, has literally said <laughs> that the independent bookstore model is not viable <laughs> oh. as a business. <laughs> That's it's very depressing. Very hard to make, um, ends meet. And I think there's, you know, we, we can, we're sort of going to hit on that a little bit in the next question perhaps too, but there's a real, um, it's difficult. And, um, so knowing that, knowing that we were already going into the pandemic situation with no cushion and you know, the board quickly started to go fund me and we had amazing success with people responding. And it's just, it's so, I, I can't tell you how many times I get like teary eyed because people say these really nice things in their messages and they're donating their money and they're thanking us so much for continuing to be there. And it's just, it's a wonderful thing. Well, it's a lifeline and a time when a lot of people aren't going out at all, having something like books that can, you know, still come to your house and from a store that you want to support so that it will be there after the period of quarantine. It's, it's a blessing. It's an incredible um, privilege to still have that. And there are plenty of places that don't have that. And yeah. so I think the gratitude is real and it's um, something that the, the city is wanting to show the bookstore. And, and I'm <laughs> glad about the new owners because that's a, that's a long-term prospect of the, the health of the yeah. bookstore, I think. Yeah. And you're right. I wanted to um, ask a kind of larger question about the fate of independent bookstores for a while, maybe you know, for the last decade or so, we've been told that independent bookstores aren't viable. But then there were stories maybe last year, may, a little bit the beginning of this year, that there was a big return of the indie bookstore and that the neighborhood bookstore was having better times, surprisingly. And I don't know if that, do you think that was a blip in the in in the larger projection of what's going to happen to bookstores? Or are you more sanguine than that? I um I think that there are that despite it not being a viable business model <laughs> and the, the reasons for that are partly um you know online people that we don't like to name uh 
who deliberately undercut prices of books in order to pull people into their model. And so they're offering books way deeper discounts than we could because they're a loss leader for them um, who could make it really easy because they're employing people in their warehouses and pushing them really hard. Um, that is a huge problem. And then publishers, uh, it's, it's really bad. The margins for bookstores are really, really low. We do not have the ability as in so many other retail um, storefront kind of businesses to set our own pricing on the product and we don't have, um, because every book is priced by the publisher. And then we also do not get as generous a discount when we are wholesaling the books from publishers as most retail stores do. So we're set up to have some pretty serious hurdles. On the other hand, um, there's a report that got published, I guess, early this year, um, by a uh, professor at Harvard Business School Brian uh, Raffaelli about why indie bookstores are actually succeeding and what those sort of secret ingredients that make indie bookstores survive are. And among them are um, really connecting to their communities, which mm -hmm. is something, you know, again, that's where we've got this cooperative model where that's really built in. And also kind of providing spaces where there's more, where there's things going on that people just want to be a part of. And so, you know, reading series and poetry events and things like that, that really bring people in for the experience, experiential things are among those key things that indie bookstores do really well and that make us succeed. So then that is part of what has kept indie bookstores alive and even has seen a bit of a resurgence over the last few years. And then we hit a pandemic. <laughs> um, that wasn't so, on your lineup of things you were hoping you could add to the hurdles. Right, exactly. And so, I mean, if you think about those two things I highlighted, you know, really connecting to your community and being able to bring people in for, you know, really unique experiences, neither of those things are as easy to do now. Um, in fact, we cannot legally bring people into our store right now during mm -hmm. the pandemic. But, um, First of all, I mean, I think there's a couple of things that really put indie bookstores in a position to still succeed. And, and I can't underemphasize that one of them is that we do have an amazing, amazing professional organization, uh, the American Booksellers Association. The new president, Allison Hills, is sending out a personal email every single day of the week updating indie bookstores about every single thing that, that they have found out that, that could be useful during these times, sharing what other stores are doing you know, making sure you have information about what loans and grants you can apply for um, and just being incredibly personally engaging. That's and um, so I'm in those emails. I'm going to webinars that they're hosting on various things. And my local regional organization, uh, we're the North Atlantic um, Independent Booksellers Association, NABA. And we've been there's a weekly cocktail hour check in every Wednesday. And we're just it's a really strong community that is very invested in each helping each other. And so I think that's a huge advantage. Um, I've picked up some amazing ideas and um, one of which was the um, sweatshirt that we just were recently were selling that you and I both bought that said stay home, read books, Buffalo street books, 2020, um, was, which there looks was fabulous to do that, that I learned about from some of my other fellow neighbor bookstores. Um, so that's one huge thing. And then that indie bookstores, they're, they're run by people who are um, just very creative and uh, persistent. <laughs> that's how they've survived so far and how they've created, you know, worked their way around the hurdles that have already existed. And so even though these are really difficult times, I mean, for, for our store, having to lay off all of our staff, I'm a one-woman show right now, and we're getting all these great orders, which will help us survive, but I'm struggling to keep up with them. So there's pros and cons, and it's always going to be hard, but I, for one, am determined to stick with it. And I think that's a very strong feeling among other indie bookstores. Well, one, fragility is definitely not on the list of things that I would 
call an adjective about your you as a general manager, you are able to withstand the ebbs and flows of this, um, which I think is such a necessary quality for an independent bookstore. But I'm I'm just really impressed by all the things you're describing, which play into my sense that bookstores are a different kind of community organization than other kinds of retail. And it just, yeah. there's something about the people who work there, their interest in what it is they're actually providing that makes mm -hmm. it a different kind of organization. I don't know if you would agree. Oh, absolutely. Um, it's a group of people who, first of all, they all love books. And I mean, you know, we did recently, we did a thing um, during what was supposed to have been Independent Bookstore Day, an event that happens every April and got postponed. Now it's supposed to be in August, but we did a little virtual bookstore week. And what we did as a store, one of the main things we did was we shared stories about some of the other indie bookstores. Yeah, so we were highlighting other bookstores, other indie bookstores in our region to let other, you know, let the people who are following us know there may be a bookstore if you're, you know, if you're home from school, you're not here at Cornell or the College anymore, but you're, you're in Philadelphia or you're in D.C. or you're in New York, that there are some great bookstores that you could support there as well. And I, I've seen, you know, other indie bookstores and indie booksellers do something very similar, very similar things. It's a really tight knit community that really looks out for each other and the people who run them are just incredibly creative and resilient, really, really dedicated. And it, it really is a wonderful group to be a part of. It's almost as if Buffalo Street Books' nature as a, as a community-owned bookstore is just really the kind of truest version of a bookstore. It's like we put our truth on the outside rather than sort of pretending that we're an, an ordinary capitalistic enterprise. <laughs> the bookstore is just showing its true self. It's not putting a cover over it. Yeah, it's it's a huge um I've said this I've said this to Brian Raffaelli, the Harvard Business School guy. Um he called and interviewed me to talk about cooperative bookstore and whether that model and well he didn't seem to think that being a cooperative bookstore as a financial aspect was really useful. It's not. I mean, we're not making a ton of money off of that. That's not the the benefit. But I really did highlight with him and I've highlighted this at other um, things that have gone on um, within the bookstore community that because we have these built in investors who really, really care, that already creates that sense of community that is what has been proven to be what's working for all all the best indie bookstores. So we have an advantage there to start from. I wanted to ask you because I, I mentioned that you're such a voracious reader and I think one of your great skills as a GM is just you know the landscape of books really, really well. And I wanted to ask you about really contemporary recent stuff that you've read that you think is great, great titles um, that have come across your desk and that you'd be willing to share with us. So, you know, I could go on for a long time here. Um, I, I, um, I did kind of, you said, mentioned that I should create a list. So I've got a list of some of the books that I think are the best books of the last five years, which I can share and we can post oh, somewhere. But yeah. um, I also just wanted to highlight a few books that have just come out or are about to come out because I'm afraid those are going to get lost in the shuffle a little bit. So, um, among the, first, I'll talk about books that I've loved, and um, among those, I would say um, Rebecca Mackay's *The Great Believers* is a book that everybody should read. Um, and uh, I have a long list. I'm not going to go on about those. People can look at them themselves. Those books have been around for a couple of years now, so people have heard about them. Well, we'll put so, we'll put that particular list on the the website and the social media for the podcast so that everyone can have great. access to that. Yeah. Um, but then um, there's a few books that have just recently come out. Um, among them, there's Alexandra Chang's um, Days of Distraction. She's a local author. And this book is her first book. And it's gotten a lot of wonderful attention. And it's really um, strong book that kind of sneaks up on you. Um, it has a lot of kind of the overriding themes about immigration and identity, but it's also just a very charming read. Um, we love Alexandra and we love that book. 
we um, hope to have her on the podcast that, actually so yeah great that's perfect um a book that came out i don't know if it was in march or anyway fairly recently i think in march uh this town sleeps by dennis staples um that's a i think he's also a debut author um and it was uh quite a dark <laughs> you'll notice a theme when we're talking, when I get to really talking about what I think a good book is, you'll hear a lot of dark, um, but ultimately really lovely book. And it's told from the perspective of a young man returning to live in the Native American community where he was raised while he's, you know, after he's been to college and while he's grappling with his own changing sexuality. Mm. It's really powerful. Um, another is Book of the Little Axe by Lauren Francis Sharma. I think that just came out. Um, we have both of these in stock if you want to buy them from Buffalo Street Books. Um, Book of the Little Axe is historical fiction, and um, I found it particularly fascinating. It illuminates the connections between Native and African peoples in the early days of our country, and it's a great read. And then there are some books coming out over the summer that um, I've already gotten to read and that I think are just among the best books, um, definitely among the best books of the year. Britt Bennett, who wrote Mothers a few years ago, mm. uh, returned in June with the book The Vanishing Half, uh, a story about two sisters, love, abandonment, and um, it has deep insights about race, color, and identity. I loved her her first book. Yeah, I love The Mother. The Mothers is on that other list, by the way. <laughs> And um, Migrations by Charlotte McConaughey. She's from Australia. I don't know if she's written anything before, nothing that I had ever written, read, read, but uh, my sales rep recommended this book and I really loved it. It's really, it's a, it's coming out in August. It's lush and beautiful. Um, it's a very deeply personal love story, which sounds I don't know. Some people might not think that's a deep story, but it's very good. And it's at the same time, it's a novel about climate change. So there you go. What's the title again? Migrations, Migrations. by Charlotte McConaughey. Okay. And then probably the book I've loved the best so far of the books that are coming out this year or have come out, um, The Death of Vivek Oji by Akutia Metsi. Um, Metsi wrote Freshwater a few oh, years yes, ago. Yeah. And the young adult novel Pet, and those were both amazing, amazing books. And I think that they just keep getting better and better with every book. And um, the death of Vivek Oji is so very sad, but also just breathtaking and ultimately very hopeful. And that comes out in August as well. And I can't wait to share that with people. Is that a young adult novel? No, or, okay. no. I mean, it's it's definitely it's a slender, very accessible piece of fiction. So it, it could definitely cross those lines, but it's not it's not directed at a YA audience. Okay, that sounds like a fabulous list. I'm I, a lot of those I haven't heard of, and I'm really excited to get my hands on them this summer, <laughs> when maybe we're back in bookstores and able to put our hands on them on the shelves. We can cross our fingers. Okay. Um, I have a related question, which is that with a small bookstore and, and Buffalo Street Books isn't tiny, but it's, you know, it's small ish. You the process of curating what's on the shelves is just so essential to people's experience of the store, to their ability to find new things, find what they want, but also find the next thing they didn't know they wanted. And I have to think that your reading process and the things you like and the things you gravitate toward help you to curate a very particular kind of store. Can you tell me a little bit about what goes into that curation process? Mm -hmm. I'm so glad you asked this question because I don't think most people really think about it. You know, like that's just, it's just this bookstore. It's just, it is what it is. Right. Um, but, um, it's, it's it's a really deeply thoughtful process and it's a very labor intensive process. It's uh, it takes a lot of time and energy to do it. And um, I mean, first and foremost, I'm always trying to be thinking about our community and all of the many different people who are a part of it. Um, I've made an extra effort to 
reach out to engage with that community, with all, everyone in our community, and to make sure that you know anyone can see themselves and their interests in our collection of books. Um, that's that. always front and center in my mind. Um, and then there's just knowing the community itself. There are some key things that make Ithaca unique that we want to you know we want to represent as a bookstore. Our our you know one of our catchphrases is Ithaca is books. And we want to make sure we're really showing that on our shelves. And there are certain things like books on activism or some fairly esoteric, deep, deeper dives on some subjects like some scientific subjects or things like that, that, that Ithaca can, has a broader population of people who are willing to go there and would be interested in. And so we can carry some of those kind of books. Um, and also Ithaca is a place where there are, is a very high proportion of writers, um, comparatively for, for the size of our community for the size also means that I can happily sell a lot of contemporary fiction, which is my happy place. Um, and so getting to know, not just, you know, what I love, but also what others in our community love and trying to make sure we're having it there. It's, it's very much, um, a process and it, evolves and it changes and it's a constant it's really fun <laughs> well the store has also just evolved with you and it will often change its look and as you are kind of highlighting areas um, or genres or new releases or books we should have paid attention to the, the store itself will kind of morph and change which i really mm -hmm. like too and i think that's something new that you've brought to the store that it mm -hmm. looks different um, when i come in if i'm not there for a couple of weeks then it will look different and yeah. i love that that's part of the fun yeah it's well it's really it, interesting for for me and other people working there as well as for the customers to see something different when you come in. Would you tell us what the best way is for us to continue to buy from Buffalo Street Books and how we can do that even during this period of social distancing? Yeah. So um, we launched uh, a new website with online store uh, right as the crisis was hitting. We'd been working on it for several months and we just were like, we got to hurry up. So you can order online at buffalostreetbooks.com now. Um, and we are fulfilling those orders as quickly as we can. I mean, by we, I mean pretty much me. <laughs> <laughs> um, so it's been an end, you know, while learning a whole new system. So it's been a bit of a slow start. The orders are not flowing super fast, but there are um, some tricks of the trade that I can share. If you are urgently in need of something for a birthday or an event. Um, try when you're on the website, look at um, where the, if the book is in stock, if we have it in stock, you can pick it up pretty quickly within a day or two. Usually another quick tip is if it, um, if your entire order is books that say in the uh, descriptions from on the site that they are usually available for in one to five days, that means they're available from our distributor. And if the entire order is available from our distributor and you're having it shipped, um, that goes directly to Ingram and then Ingram fulfills it from there and sends it to you, which eliminates the time processing it in the store. So those are some tips on how to get them faster, but we're working on special orders. We're putting in pre-orders um, and we are getting a lot of orders and support from people who know and love us, as well as really finding new customers during this time. So it's kind of an exciting thing. So if you're looking for ways to support independent bookstores, we're going to have links directly to Buffalo Street Books. And even if it's not your neighborhood store, it is a store that would love your support and will count you as one of its you know, dearest devoted readers. Um, <laughs> and... I just want to thank you, Lisa. This has been such a wonderful conversation, and it's made me, again, realize how much I want to keep fighting for my bookstore and make sure that it's there and that you are there, um, ready to welcome us all in as soon as this is over. Thanks, Chris. You and your family are among our best customers, and we love you all. And I wanted to add that if you are local and you want to do store um, curbside pickup, that's something we're doing, too, right now. We can... Um, get your book order ready and leave it curbside for you to pick up when it's all together. So that's fantastic. Thanks so much, Lisa Swayze. Thank you.
Bye-bye. Take care. Bye. Welcome back to Burned by Books. So this week's rep recommendations are going to be for really an entire subgenre that has a really long history, but from which I'm just going to be drawing um, 20th and 21st century examples. I think of this subgenre as the paranoid campus novel. Whether you went to college or are going to college, have never stepped foot on a campus, the novel set on a college campus is a genre with a long and serious history, and there's clearly something about that space that keeps drawing us back as readers. I mean, it's not really a campus novel, but what more did Hamlet really want than to get back to university so he would feel less guilty about not getting around to killing his uncle? I think there's something to say about the vulnerability associated with leaving home and joining a society that's entirely elected. No blood relatives, no next-door neighbors, and it's essentially run by teenagers on libidinal free range. There's always the feeling that universities are one power outage away from Lord of the Flies, and so the space of a college campus becomes the imaginative tapestry on which we draw our future selves, the latent adult we might be able to enact in our best future selves. And this promise and optimism, of course, comes with a deep paranoia about belonging, about talent and potential, about love of self and love of others. Thus is born the paranoid campus novel a subgenre that I'd like to divide into three camps. First is the hidden talent and genius unappreciated, best represented in the following line. Madden, Harry, you're a wizard. Despite your banal, ordinary life, your boring family, you are dust destined for greatness beyond your imagination. You just need that acceptance letter. And also, a terrible dark force that may or may not be your twin self is threatening to screw up all that latent geniusness. Harry Potter is, of course, the archetype for this form of the subgenre, but there's a lot of this out there. A particularly good example is the trilogy of books by Lev Grossman, The Magicians, which takes the general structure of the Harry Potter novels, get into the ultra-prestigious magical school, learn that you are a super-talented arch-wizard, but Lev Grossman takes it in a more adult direction by asking the question of whether, if given infinite powers, um, we would become bored with our lot in life without real struggles and indeed adventures necessary to claim our humanness, even as we have so much unbelievable power. The second is exemplified in Donna Tartt's cultish masterpiece, The Secret History, a story of getting into the most prestigious of universities only to fall under the charismatic spell of a cult of brilliant students or professors. This has recently been revisited to great effect in Mona Awad's grisly comic feminist horror show, Bunny. The story of a young woman in an MFA program who realizes that her friends can conjure empty vessel bodies of men that they can then hack into pieces in order to feed some great creative muse. It's really an exceptional example of this part of the subgenre, and I recommend it really highly. I think Awad is a, is a great contemporary talent. And as well, if you haven't read Secret History, I feel like that is necessary reading for anybody who likes this genre. And finally, 
the paranoid form par excellence, university as breeding ground for an army of undifferentiated capitalist toys. I'm reading a really fun example of this now, Catherine House by Elizabeth Thomas, in which the students at an elite tuition-free college are experimented upon to remove their free will. Of course, the Ur example, an all-time burned-by-books recommendation in this part of the subgenre, is Kazuo Ishiguro's extraordinary campus novel, Never Let Me Go. The story of school children who learn that their studies are an elaborate ruse to distract them from the knowledge that they are in fact clones, grown to have their organs slowly harvested for the non-clone population to live longer and healthier lives. So my recommendations for your quarantine reads this week are deep dives into the paranoid campus novel. I think you'll have a lot of fun finding the various elements of this subgenre and seeing how deep its history runs. The money you spend with an independent bookstore may mean the difference between a store that can open after COVID-19 and one that has to shutter forever. I hope that this episode has called out in you your love for that local bookstore and that you'll find ways to support them whenever possible. And please, listen to us on Apple Podcasts. Well, that's it for us at Burned by Books. I want to thank Lisa Swayze, General Manager of Buffalo Street Books. You can find her list of her favorite novels of the last five years and a list of upcoming releases to look out for this summer on our website at burnedbybooks.com. Please consider purchasing one of these books from Buffalo Street or your neighborhood bookstore where you can subscribe to the podcast and rate us to make it easier to help others find us. Keep an eye out for the upcoming episodes. Thanks again for listening. This has been Burned by Books. Burned by Books.